Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 162. I've got an old friend on the show today, um, one of my favorite people in the industry. And on the surface, this is not a baseball-specific podcast. Um, he's actually got a new book that, that came out recently, I think is outstanding. And I think it's a really, really important collection of messages because it's heavily focused on behavior changes. And while it's written in the vein of nutrition, I think there are a lot of lessons that we can apply to everything from post-reading rehab scenarios to healthy athlete training, just to a lot of interventions that we utilize with our athletes and the way we change our own behaviors. Um, and I think he does a really, really good job drawing into his, his background in psychology, as well as his remarkable network across the, the health and human performance realm. So we're in for a really good show that I think you'll like, whether you're interested in baseball or not. This episode is brought to you by AG1, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it can be difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can often wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where AG1 can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. That's why I use it daily, as do several of my family members, and we recommend it to a lot of our top athletes. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet to support energy, focus, digestion, and recovery. And this can all happen for less than $3 per day and without taking multiple products. While most nutritional supplements come to market and stay stagnant, AG1 continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing over 50 improvements in the last decade alone. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best tasting nutrition habit on the planet. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it'll work for you, and it contains less than one gram of sugar per serving. They put 75 ingredients through the rigorous NSF certification test to come up with a safe formula that's trusted by some of the world's top athletes, including many of our own at Cressy Sports Performance. Right now, AG1 is giving our listeners a special offer of 10 free travel packets with their first purchase. Just head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim this special offer. These travel packets are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health while you're traveling for games, training, or simply on the go. They can be great counterbalance to the less than ideal on the road food options that are out there for a lot of our traveling baseball players. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance of getting nutrient diversity, head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy to get 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. Again, that's drink ag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. You won't regret it. Today's guest is a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning writer and editor and the author of You Can't Screw This Up. He's the founder of Born Fitness and Pen Name Consulting and the co-founder of The Pump with Arnold Schwarzenegger. For the past 20 years, he has been the trusted voice in health as the fitness and nutrition editor for Men's Health, as well as editorial director at Livestrong. He was also a columnist for Shape, Men's Fitness, and Muscle and Fitness. He's worked as a nutrition advisor for LeBron James, Cindy Crawford, Lindsey Vaughn, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's the former chief nutrition officer at Ladder and former vice president of nutrition for Fit On. 
His work has been featured in dozens of publications, including the New York Times, Fast Company, ESPN, and GQ, and he's appeared on Good Morning America, The Today Show, E! News, and The Cheddar. Please welcome to the show, Adam Bornstein. Adam, this is is likely very overdue. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I mean, I'm a patient man, but yeah, it is a little overdue. To be fair, it is a baseball podcast, and um, I know you're a diehard Cubs fan, but I'm not sure that inherently qualifies you. So I needed you to write a book that really gave me a, a veiled reason to do this. So thank you. Yeah, if that was the uh, if that was the case, it still would have taken me this long to figure out how to get on. Since this this book took me a while to figure out how to write, but that is fair enough. We are here now. Well, I think when when you can get Arnold Schwarzenegger to write. Uh, your intro or your, I guess your forward to any kind of book, it, regardless of genre, it immediately qualifies you to go on any podcast that is fitness related. So good feather in your cap. I mean, we should tell that to everyone. I was like, oh, you don't want to have me. Have you seen the forward by Arnold? Yes. <laughs> well, let's talk about it. So you know, obviously on the surface, this book doesn't have an immediate application to a baseball population outside of your, your loyalty to the Cubs. But as I went through it, I couldn't help but recognize it as, you know, not just a, a diet book, right? Far more than that. It's, to me, it's much more of a behavior change manifesto. And that intrigues me. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a reason why is for a long time, I, I worked in the private sector exclusively. And there is a nice kind of velvet rope around the private sector. People come and they pay to you, you know, for your expertise so that you can leverage the overwhelming majority of what you know. And when you start working with the team, you realize it's it's much more about closing the gap between what you know and you can implement. You want to get through to people so that they'll participate in more of the you know the progressive initiatives that you think are very very important. So I think that's why I, I listened to this book as more than just you know any old diet book. Um, there were lessons that could be applied a, across a, a variety of goals initiatives. So I, I'm curious, you know, for you, what was the reason that you decided to write this book, H- having been involved in you know both you know, directly and indirectly in this industry for so long? Because we needed a book that wasn't a diet book, right? I think you you nailed it. The, the way you sell it to a publisher is as a diet book, because that's where a lot of my expertise is. And there are things that are applicable to dieting. But, you know, I, I look at the problem of people struggling with nutrition or fitness or the health in general as not one that is a matter of nutrition science or exercise science. There is a huge breakdown in helping people establish behavioral change. And specifically, most people aren't even aware of what I call the trap doors that they stand on. They're not aware of the limitations that really set them up for failure. And I think the primary thesis that I have in the book, and which is applicable to so many other walks of life, is that the programs that people are following are breaking them down mentally. And that is why they are falling short of what they hope to achieve physically. And I wanted to write a book that talked about what really stood in the way of behavioral change, apply it to nutrition, apply it to exercise. But, you know, as you point out, the front half of the book really is a a psychological book. And I argue that in order for us to become healthier, in order to connect better with people, we actually should probably be taking lessons from outside of fitness and nutrition because, in this realm, fitness and nutrition, behavioral change is, you know, the rate of change is not good. But in other walks of life, it's actually much better. So what can we take from other walks of life where we see behaviors that change? Because eating well, exercise, changing people's mindset, there's still behaviors. 
what can we learn from other disciplines that we can then apply and also show how so many of the things we do, specifically in nutrition, excuse me, they're really stupid, right? If you take the things that we do in nutrition applied in any other walk of life, you're like, no, that's ridiculous. Why would you ever do it? But in nutrition, because so much of the nutrition industry is about the industry, it's not about the nutrition, right? It's about driving sales or getting people to buy, not changing behavior. It's messed up. So it took a while to figure out, but it was the book that I wanted to write more than anything. I've written a book of my own in nine years because it was like, it was this book or it was bust. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I did it. And it is definitely a little bit different than what you typically see in a, in a quote unquote diet book. I, I thought it was necessarily unique for, for lack of a better term. And, you know, it's funny years ago, I always remember Alan Cosgrove, was giving a talk and he said, here's the anatomy of every diet book. Chapter one, you've all been lied to. Chapter two, here's why this diet is different. And then chapters two through 10 sample recipes, right? Um, and, you know, I, I listened to the start of your book and it, 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 it reflected that, that same, you know, kind of first chapter, you've all been lied to, but it was very different in the sense that it wasn't the low carb people yelling at the low fat people. And it was in intermittent fasting, yelling at paleo or whatever it was. What it was is saying all these people that have tried to sell you these terribly designed diet books over the years, all of them are wrong because at the end of the day, it seems like every modern dietary approach is, is too negative and too complex. Um, so, so I found myself nodding in agreement throughout that. And I thought it was an amazing pivot. I guess my question to you, and, and you've got remarkable perspective, right? You were, you know, editor at Livestrong at, at Men's Health. You've, you've, you know, worked with all these uh, well-known athletes, celebrities on on feature stories for these publications. You've seen every aspect of the industry. On top of having a background in psychology, in psychology yourself, how did we get here? What was it that that set us up for such a absolute debacle of an approach to nutritional overhauls? I wish I could pinpoint one thing, right? And you, you're, you're in this for a while. And the closest thing I could say is that the wellness industry just became too big. And I mean, right, like a lot of people will say that, you know, we're so unhealthy because we don't spend money on like on health. And that's not true, right? Like the wellness industry, when you include everything, it's a trillion dollar industry. And the government even spends billions of dollars. Are they spending it on the wrong thing? I would argue yes, and most people would agree. So it's not a lack of money or resources or care. It's not a lack of policy. I think, you know, a big part of what happened is, you know, people started caring about their health in new ways more significantly. And a lot of the reason they cared about their health is because we started becoming more unhealthy, right? The trajectory of obesity in the country is staggering and scary. And it's not just the trajectory of obesity. So if you go back to like the 1950s, 1960s, you have anywhere between like 10 to 14% of people being like overweight and obese. If you look at today, 75% of people in the United States alone are overweight or obese. And if you look worldwide over the last three decades, you've seen across all countries, that same trend, not to the same peak as the US, but it's happening everywhere. And then you look at, well, how many people are dieting? And in like the 1950s and 60s, you have like less than 10% of people dieting. And in today, you have 40% of men and 60% of women who do multiple diets per year. And what's crazy is that those numbers have stayed consistent since the 1980s. So for the last 40 years, 
You have half the population dieting while everyone continues to get more and more overweight. And all of these diets just get people to dig in deeper to like a behavioral ideology that becomes like religion, right? I always say that the best way to figure out like what diets can be best is look at all the diets where people have some level of success and look for the commonalities, not the differences, but people will fight about the differences and go crazy, but it's great for business because for every like carnivore diet, there has to be a vegan for every like paleo diet there has to be people who are like the anti-paleo and each you know action has an equal and opposite reaction where people can dig in more and there's more things to sell more things to sell more things to sell and the only thing that we're not really selling is like what's the most sustainable behaviors that you can go ahead and do to make you healthier we you know uh, it's another cosgrove saying that i talked about in the book that, like you don't want to shoot a cannon from a canoe Right. I remember Cosmo saying was a, a you know men's health in terms of like exercise foundation, but it's such a great analogy for life. We're like cannon from a canoe, canoes toppling over, right? Behaviorally, we give people cannons. We give them like all these ideas that could hypothetically be healthy, but no one's got a stable foundation. We don't have healthy habits. We don't know how to build a diet. We don't know how to exercise consistently. So we tell them to do these extreme things and we wonder why they keep on toppling over. And it's just like it's it almost became like too easy to sell people because it's so easy to sell fear and greed. It's so easy to sell the idea of this one food will make you better or this one yeah. food is making you sick and people will buy in because they want to be healthy. Yeah. Like it's so easy to sell health to people. But then what happens is like the diets keep on breaking people, making them more vulnerable, making them more susceptible. And at what point that was the point of the book, like what's the point you just call time out. And it's just like, guys, Let's look at this situation. There's no shortage of diet books. Why in the world are we all so healthy? And it's like the fundamental approach we take towards nutrition, the same one most people take towards exercise, is designed to be a short-term success, long-term failure. It is designed to break you. There is nothing sustainable. If you've read Atomic Habits, there's nothing about habit change in this at all. It flies in the face of it. I give tons of analogies. It's like, imagine someone walking and they've never done math and you try and teach them calculus and geometry on day one. They're going to they're gonna fail. And that's obvious for someone. But, you know, where's the addition and subtraction in nutrition? Where's the addition and subtraction in behavioral change from a healthy standpoint? And if we focus more on that, the behaviors we actually need to adopt, the approach we need to, to take yeah. becomes much more clear. But you have to get away from that bright, shiny object. And it's really tough in the wellness industry it's a it's a car with no engine and no tires and we just keep changing the fuzzy dice in the mirror you know and right and it, it never it never delivers the outcome we need but you know the thing that fascinates me the most is it, it's obviously maybe not the the target audience for your book but it, it's it's eventually going to become the target audience is is we see it in young athletes like I'm, I'm blown away i see major league baseball players that decide in the middle of the season just to go keto like we're just going to change it up um, I once saw a pro boxer who made weight and ate a jar of peanut butter in the next 12 hours after he made weight, had the worst fight of his life the next day. And we see young, you know, high school kids that walk into supplement stores and just, you know, they they basically get sold by the the 19-year-old behind the counter who's, you know, maybe just a casual observer to exercise physiology. Right. But people are are dramatically drawn to, you know, this this quick fix mentality. Um, and, and so in the context of trying to you know, I effectively changed that narrative. Obviously, the the book is an amazing step in that direction. And I'm curious, you cited a line from our, our mutual friend, Tim Ferriss, who 
you know, I think, you know, as an interviewer is, is super skilled. Like I, I got to experience it firsthand myself is he always understands how to kind of get to the root of things. And, and you, you commented that he had a line that he would use a lot with you and with, with even with guests with, he would ask, what would it look like if this was easy? You know um, you know, so I guess my question is if we're trying to fix this problem, you know, is there a way to to effectively get people back to these foundational behavioral change habits that you know will ultimately drive more sustainable success? Yeah, Tim's uh, Tim's brilliant, right? And it, it's funny because like you you learn from the ways that people think, and you don't necessarily have to agree. With, you know, Tim and I disagree with things on a nutrition standpoint, but the way that he dissects problems is just so freaking smart. And it was a, the question they asked me that helped me figure out how to write this book. And you know, what if it would look like if this were easy? So for me, I tried to stop asking like, well, like what diet do people need to go on? And I started asking like, well, what are the barriers that actually make it hard for people to adopt behaviors? And you can apply this to like anything. And there, there are two things that I really found very, very helpful. One that we can talk about specifically from diet and one that I think applies to coaches, athletes, anyone. And, you know, if anything else, like, you know, I've talked to so many coaches now at this point about the book, it is a guideline to better understand your clientele, if nothing else, because this is like 20 years of me working in the field distilled into like, what are the behavioral patterns that are most maladaptive that stand in people's way? So from a diet standpoint, the three things of like, if this were easy, what would it look like? One, it would be more convenient. Most diets are very, very inconvenient. There's no leeway for people to have any variability on a day-to-day basis, right? That's not good, but that happens for people repeatedly. And as I argue in the book, you don't need to go back to step zero. That's the problem with diets. They, you know, they vilify behaviors that are completely normal. So, you know, not step one, what's simple? Well, it's convenient. Like you can actually do it. Step two, which is related to the means, it's not complex. Most diet routines that give you the 17 step plans where in a completely controlled environment. That's great. I mean, we were joking about like getting out here before. Like, is a kid going to run through the door? Is the Wi-Fi going to go out? Like there's so much variability in life that if you make things overly complicated, you make it less likely that you can master a behavior. And I think so much of behavioral changes mastery. So much of mastery is like, can you make it so easy that it's hard to fail because if you make it so easy that it's hard to fail, you can stack these habits, you can stack these behaviors, you can build up confidence, and then you can tackle the more difficult things. We want people to start at level zero and be able to do level 10 and completely ignore the fact that like, if they don't have that stable foundation in which it's easier to take on things that are harder, they'll fail. The analogy I give in the book is that for the person who's ever walked into the gym, you have two options, right? You can assess them and have them do some body weight movements and they're going to get out of there and they're probably going to be pretty sore. Or you can like go ahead and put them under the bar and load 300 pounds on there and absolutely crush them. The thing is, both of those workouts are probably going to leave them pretty beat up and sore because they haven't trained before. But only one of those approaches is going to make them never come back to the gym ever again, right? And that's the loading them up under 300 pounds and trying to prove like, oh, look, what can you do, right? We have to build people up rather than break them down. And a lot of that means like don't start with the complexity. Start with what make it easy so hard. So it's the convenience, the complexity, and the last one, cost. Right. From a nutrition standpoint, a lot of these diet plans begin with the plan of like you you buy the twenty dollar diet book, but now you gotta have a thousand dollars of upsells. And it's like that yeah. that becomes a frustrating experience. And people will invest more when they're ready to take on bigger challenges, they want more expertise, or when they've established again a level of success that gives them more confidence that they can build from there. So from a diet standpoint, it's the complexity, it's the cost, it's the convenience. In general, you know, if it were, you know, how, what would it look like if it were easy? 
I use a framework that is incredibly helpful that anyone can take, and it's the idea of inversion. And I talk about this in the book, where most people, when we start with someone, we start with goals, what they want to achieve. But we don't then take the time to start of like, well, if this doesn't work out, why? Because most people have been in a situation where they have not achieved a goal. And most people know what their barriers are. And when we set up a goal, it's great to be ambitious and excited and confident, but it is negligent. It is ignorant to not talk about what are the barriers. This does not mean you're not being optimistic. You're being realistic. So inversion says, start at the end, say three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now, you have fallen short of your goal. You have failed. Sounds negative, right? That's not how you start a plan. Hey, you're going to fail in three months. What's, you know, but why? Why did you fail? Right? And people, if they're willing to have that open conversation, will be like, oh, well, I'm like, I, I, I eat out at lunch every single day and I know I'm going to be, you know, or you're telling me I got to work out in the morning and I'm not a morning person. I'm never going to do this. Or like all these people know the road. I had a previous coach who was terrible. And now I really hate squats and I know you're going to make me squat. So I'm just never going to show up to my training session. Right. When you invert and have an honest conversation about the barriers, you can do two things. One, if it's easy, you keep some of the things that people are worried that they're going to lose that really make them feel the process enjoyable. So much of wellness is about restrict, restrict, restrict. And we got to remember that like, it's much better if people drop the habits that no longer serve them on their own volition and people will get there if you allow them to see success. So start with some of the things that you want. That's why I said, most people don't want to cut out, take out and dessert. And I'm like, okay, let's keep them in. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give you other things. You got to do this to be healthy for you. But like, let's keep in those things because you're saying you're going to be miserable. Otherwise, I know if you're miserable, you're probably going to quit. I don't want you to quit. I want more time to succeed. Mm-hmm. And then you also find out the things that like they're worried about or why mm-hmm. they might fail behaviorally yeah. action. And you build a plan that prevents that or prepares them what to do when it happens. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're going to have the day where you're not going to show up to training. And you're going to be afraid yeah. to tell me going to ghost on me for an entire week and I'm going to get pissed and you're going to feel guilty and we're never going to speak again. When you have that moment, here's exactly what you're going to do. And like this is making it easy because you're actually addressing the real problem. You're addressing the elephant in the room, which is like we all start out with these grandiose visions of what we want to achieve. And we know that at some point the rubber's going to hit the road and it's going to get difficult. Don't act like it's not going to get difficult, but don't act like those difficult moments are screw-ups. Don't act like those difficult moments are actually a detour. It is part of the journey if you're willing to have a conversation and know how to plan it. Yeah, I, I love that. It's almost like play for the tie, right? Like, all right, have your dessert, but you got to give me this. Like, you you have some give and take in any kind of structure. But, you know, I, what I love about that inversion model is it forces you to think more upstream and I'm a big like chip and Dan Heath fan. I know you mentioned him in the book as, as you know, one of the kind of like our collection of several people who have really made a big difference from a behavioral change standpoint in the industry. Right. When, when you, when you start thinking about how can this go wrong, immediately you start looking upstream You're like, Oh, it's a, it's a family dynamic, right? Like you have, you know, social influences that don't want to eat healthy. What's the way that we can protect you from some of that. I just see such a, a, a strong role for that in, in, in everything we do, not just nutritionally, but, you know, in the, in the baseball world, like we deal with 19 year old kids who are always dehydrated. You know, they just, they can't possibly put it in their mind that, you know, they, they need to, to drink more fluids if they're playing in, you know, the, you know, FCL where it's hundred degrees and 95% humidity out. Um, like these are the things that come up, but we also look at, you know, baseball. I talk about this, it's this gradual shift that takes place, right? 162 games, you 
in the regular season, but you wind up playing 200 games in 230 days. If you do spring training, regular season, postseason, most guys have to warm up twice a day, right? There's like the pre, you know, game warm up that happens before the seven o'clock game, but people don't realize earlier in the day you have, you know, hitting, pitching, fielding practice. There's a warm up before that as well. Like two warm ups a day times two, you know, basically 200 days, like 400 warm ups is what you need to do over the course of a year to really be dedicated to this. Like that's a, that's a tall thing to tackle. And it sounds crazy to say, but we're, we're literally begging grown men to just warm up before they exercise, you know, when right. they're potentially making millions of dollars. So you, you really have to work backwards from that and deconstruct it. You, what you do is you, you lean on your veterans who always do it to make sure the younger guys establish habits. You create a sense of community, you change the music, you know, you bust guys chops, you, you do whatever you possibly can to make them all accountable to each other. Because if one guy gets away with not doing it, then everyone else will, will always just kind of follow that pattern. So it's a, it's a very different way of approaching this and one that have, have you seen it approached in a single diet book that you've read in the past? That's the issue. I'd say like we make people fight with the environment rather than coexist. And what you're just talking about, how the environment influences behavior and influences people. Right. So uh, we act like we can control all of these variables instead of acting like, well, what is the reality of the situation? And then what do we control? And what do we not? Right. Even like reference stoicism in the book of like, oftentimes we put so much emphasis on the variables that we don't control. Our food environment sucks. Right. But like fundamentally, we can like curse the food environment or we can ask ourselves, like, how do we coexist with it? Most books just want to fight the food environment, right? Or say like, don't ever eat takeout, don't ever drink alcohol, don't ever have dessert. And if you do go to a restaurant, don't touch the bread basket, don't order chips, order your entree, cut half of it in, in half and give the path. Like who's doing this? No one's doing this. I've never seen someone cut their entree in half and give the other half to the server or it's like we, we know psychologically people who operate from this mental standpoint do not succeed, right? There's a study that reference the book that I love because they took people for one day in the journal of obesity. One day they're telling them, we don't want you to eat these foods. Just don't touch these foods. Whatever you do, don't eat these foods. And what do the people do? They eat 133% more of the foods. Of course <laughs> they do. Because like you just put all of the restrictions. People who operate from this mindset have more shame, have more guilt, have more loathing, have more cravings, right? Like we are creating an environmental cocktail that is going to make people fuck up, think that they fuck up and then be like, well, why did you screw up? And I'm like, well, did you see the parameters of the game itself? But diets don't care about that, right? Diets are just like, no, no, no. I want you to get really, really fast results really, really quick. And it's just all smoke and mirrors, right? In the, in the same way that like, if you know the environment, you have to change up the locker room. If you know the leaders, you might have to put them with the people who are most likely to like go off the rails. Sometimes the most talented people like have just never been that in that environment or the people who are struggling for the first time in their life. You, you can't talk to them the same way, right? Like knowing how to connect with people is truly a superpower. And you do this long enough and I've connected with a lot of people, people are frustrated. And when you hear them, they're not being like, man, like I'm having trouble figuring out like which type of carbohydrate I can eat. Right. The problems are much different. It's just like, yeah. I can't have a social life. I feel, yeah. I stress about every single meal. There was a study that I read, it was a survey, so it wasn't a study that like people stress on average seven times every single time they eat. And I believe it because I hear these people and I'm like, what do I eat? Did I eat enough? Did I eat the right things? Oh no. What am I going to have yeah. the next? Like it's this environment where it's just like, it, 
it's not designed to help people thrive. So the conversations have to be different. We have to consider our environment. And then we have to build an environment around us that doesn't like, you know, completely say, oh, we can control all these variables because we can't. And like, that is part of the problem. If we create a construct that requires perfection, we're going to fail. And I don't care what, like I've worked with, you know, as you said, I've interviewed everyone. And like the athletes that I see strive, the actors that I see strive, know what's on the line and know how consistent they have to be. But they also have leeway to do some of the things that they enjoy. So they don't lose their mind. As you point out, like you got to warm up like 400 times, right? Like there's like the parameters are so different. But what I learned from athletes are the ones that actually give themselves their leeways are the ones that are able to stay most consistent because they have those little plan breaks and you see that in the research, right? They call, they're called them planned hedonic deviations, right? AKA the cheat meals, right? The people who have these planned hedonic deviations, what it allows, it just means like every now and then they can have dessert. They get to have off days. And because they know it's part of the plan and not something that you have to catastrophize, it makes it easier for them to stay in the game. It makes them easier to keep applying. It makes them easier to stick to the plan because it doesn't require perfection. I talk about it in the book that there should be no such thing as 100% weeks because they're not real. If it happens, that's like an aberration, right? Great. Yeah. Good job. That's not the goal. The goal is no 0% weeks. You see yeah. this working with professional athletes. I've seen this writing stories about people for 20, 20 plus years now, right? The most impressive people aren't the ones who wake up and every single day feel like a million bucks and are PR every single day. The most impressive people are the ones who like when they feel like absolute still show up and don't take the day off. And the same thing is true. You just want to avoid the 0% week. And that means knowing you ain't going to be perfect. You ain't going to feel great. Your Every meal isn't going to be locked in. But when you're having those days, can you still stick to some of those tools that allow you to be healthier? And those days aggregate in a big way, but because they have such more of an impact as opposed to like the day that you go 0%, you feel really bad. And what happens when you have that 0%, one of two things are going to happen. Either you just quit completely right? You're just, you get in, uh, get a case of buckets and it's, it's gone. Right. And you might be yeah. off for months at a time or you grind harder. I, I ate bad. I didn't exercise. I'm going to double day the next workout. I'm going to fast. I'm going to detox. I'm yeah. going to take 16 servings of pre-workout to go and rage mm-hmm. in the gym. And that causes you to accelerate and grind so much harder that you yeah. still end up crashing and probably yeah. take off for even longer. And it's just like, it's such a broken approach. We interrupt this podcast with a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by AG1. It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement that features 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily myself and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer of 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. AG1 gives you peace of mind that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you'll get that special offer. I've had some really good conversations with our, our mutual friend, Ben Bruno, about this. Is you know, and I think social media, to be honest, has, has exacerbated a lot of this, is that you know, and I'm probably guilty of it, right? You see a bunch of my 600-pound deadlifts on the internet, but you don't really you know, get a feel for like all those days where I showed up and I just wasn't feeling great. And I took 405 for speed and like lived to fight another day. The, the people who are having a lot of success in the gym tend to have a lot of six and seven out of 10 training sessions over the course of their career, but they always seem to show up. And, you know, for me, like I went eight years without missing a training session, just showing up was like 
a very big key for me early on in my lifting career. Um, and, and I think more people can, can benefit from like realizing that like showing up is kind of like one of these core competencies is just continue to actually be there. Don't have those days when you, you know, you, you're, you're literally off the grill or off the grid for about, you know, seven to 10 days because it's so much harder to get going again. Like that consistency is very huge. Yeah. I mean, social media is a big trap, but at the same time, if people were to look at, I'll give you an example. I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit from a practical standpoint. How often do you show those massive deadlifts? Not yeah. that often, right? It's not like it's every Once single it's Not, like not many after knee surgery. <laughs> right. Right. But like, yeah. but that's like, it's the thing that we don't see because we check in, but it's like, yeah. It, there's the person who every single day is like PR every day. And the person like, oh, wow, I haven't seen a picture of EC deadlifting. And like, here he is crushing it. What happens in between there? It's like, there's a reason why you're not seeing those lifts every single yeah. day. That's not how success is built. Right. Yeah. And, but like, we lose that because, you know, right. Social media sensationalizes, sensationalizes the things that catch our attention. And talk about in the book, our brains are wired this way. Like diets are able to prey on us because, Something new or novel, we fundamentally think is more likely to work. Something that is complex, we fundamentally think that is more likely to work. And we ignore the things that seem boring, familiar, or too simple. And the funny thing about that is, you know, if you're taking taking an evidence-based approach, and by evidence-based, I truly mean the intersection of science and practical application. I don't think evidence is just research because what happens in real life is always going to be ahead of what research can find. But you do want you know, the real life application to show you what might work and you want the ideally some science to back it up. When you look at that beautiful intersection, science is a matter of validity and reliability, which are the two most boring, simple constructs of all time. So it's things that are proven out repeatedly over time. So you could say with a high level of veracity of this works. But what happens is the more we have this repeated measure of finding out that something is effective, the more likely to be like, boring. Someone show me the, the crazy new study about the one biomarker that changes when, you know, I fast for 76 hours. And right, it's just like the mechanisms that become so exciting that we want to buy in, whereas the things that are going to have the highest yield, the things that are going to have the highest rate of investment or return of investment for your time, for your energy, are the things that you're probably most likely to ignore, like showing up and not missing a workout for eight years. And they weren't all PRs, but it meant because you showed up, when the day was right, when you were ready, you could grip it and rip it. And you had like a, an IG worthy clip, not because it was IG worthy, but because like you put in the work for the boring stuff that most people, you know, don't celebrate, don't talk about and don't even think about. I, you know, you, you cited some really sobering statistics on how high the likelihood is that, that people will regain weight after, after dieting and, and not just like the, the most extensively bad diets, but just basic dieting. What are some of those numbers? And, and more importantly, what are the lessons that we learn both from a nutritional standpoint and from like a overall behavioral change standpoint? Yeah, I think so. You're going to see yeah, a lot of times the numbers are like inflated. It's like, oh, 95% of people who like you try and lose weight, like gain it all back. That's not true. Um, but you're, you are going to see anywhere, you know, it depends on there's a study at UCLA where essentially I think it was right about 70% of people who lost weight ended up regaining more. There was one in obesity reviews where it was, I want to say it was 40% of people end up regaining more. And like, those are the ones that are scary, right? Because you're seeing half or more, half to, you know, three quarters, they're gaining more weight back than when they started. And a large percentage of people do regain the weight. 
What becomes interesting is when you walk away from those super restrictive plans or when you walk away even from dieting. The UCLA study was super interesting because it looked at people who went on a diet for a year and they followed them then for another year after versus people who didn't go on a diet. And the most fascinating thing is on average, people gain about one to three pounds per year. So sometimes you have those aberration in there, but when people talk about weight gain, it's rarely like you go off the rails for one year. You're like, you're the weight you want to be at when you're 20. And then you wake up and you're 40 and you're 20 or 60 pounds heavier than when you were, you know, 20. And you're like, what happened? And what happened was 20 years of gaining one to three pounds. Right. And then you look at these people who are dieters and a lot of them actually gain more than that one to three pounds. In the UCLA study, the two-year bracket, the average non-dieter gained 1.2 pounds per year, whereas the dieters were getting more because what was happening is during the first six months, they were actually losing more weight than the non-dieters. Then the back half six months where they go off the rails, they gained more because of that rebound effect, right? I talk about like the slingshot where you just put so much pressure on someone where they, they lose their mind and like they don't revert back to the mean. They revert far back away because they are just busted up, beaten up, tired, hungry, broken, and it's bad. And then you look at these high adherence diets. So by high adherence, you mean less likely to have restrictions, more likely to have dessert, uh, fewer parameters, but more boundaries. So boundaries are like, how do I make sure I'm not my own worst enemy? One that I give in an example is that like, I, I used to be an intermittent fasting. I'm not anymore. I don't think it's bad. I just think most of the claims are so grossly overstated that, you know, there's no need to do it. Uh, it's great if it's a parameter, but what intermittent fasting does really well is it creates a boundary on eating. There was a, this fascinating study where like, if you just moved your breakfast up an hour and a half and moved your dinner up an hour and a half, you did nothing else. People not only ate less, they lost weight and they kept the weight off without changing anything else. Why? Because people had boundaries on when they're going to eat. So it wasn't about a fasting window, right? You could have like been eating at 11 o'clock at night and you could have been eating at 6 a.m. But like that was the boundary. And if it was like 12 p.m., you weren't going to go and eat a burrito. And if it's like 4 a.m., you know, you're not eating donuts, right? You create boundaries on these. When you see these people with more restrictive plans, they gain back about 50% of the weight. So they don't keep all of the weight they lose, but they don't gain it back and they don't gain back more than they started with. So when you start to see behaviorally, epidemiologically, and even like when you look, there's something called the National uh, NWC or National Weight Control Registry. And this is a log of 10,000 people who have lost double-digit weight and kept it off for years. And they're just trying to find the common denominator. And what you see the common denominator is these people don't cut out carbs. They don't cut out dessert. They eat breakfast. They weigh themselves. Like they go for walks. And you you start to see, right, success leaves clues. And the people who have the most success rarely are dependent on these extremes. And the people who rely on these extremes where you are cutting out a single macronutrient, doesn't matter if it's fat, doesn't matter if it's carbs, doesn't matter if it's dairy, they're much more likely to rebound. They're much more likely to not only gain back the weight, but gain more than they started because, again, they built this like maladaptive foundation where it was a habit that you could not sustain. Like if you're choosing a diet where like you're literally waiting for it to be over, that is a sign that the diet is not going to work. I don't care how much weight you lose during that time. The likelihood of you gaining it all back and then some is very, very high. Dieting is like a relationship. If you go on a first date and the first date kind of sucks. Like what? Don't go on a second date. Stop wasting your time on these like, you know, not these plans that are worth your time. It's it's ridiculous, but it's so easy because we get sold the promise.
We get sold the promise. And instead of looking at the weight you lose during that small window that you could stay on the plan, ask what happens around the larger window when you're off the plan. Because if you would have done nothing at all, you would have lost less weight than what ends up happening when you're on that off cycle because you get so messed up, so frustrated, and so burned out. Can we extend these lessons to other disciplines? Um, and the reason I, what's top of mind for this as you talk about it is I, I see dramatic parallels between people who regain weight after a restrictive diet and people who go to rehabilitation. They feel better after six weeks of physical therapy. And then six months later, they're back there with the same shoulder knee pain that was there because they, they fundamentally didn't change a lot of things that they did. Um, do you think that there are there are upstream parallels across disciplines? Yeah, I mean, the whole book is based on things outside of nutrition. And I give studies then to back it up. Uh, you know, as people, as humans, we are behavioral creatures. Our behaviors are based on these same exact principles. And I think we make these uh, these bad bargains where we over-index on uh, the result that we want and the bright, shiny object, and we under-index the behaviors that actually make us feel better, the behaviors that we know serve us most. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like The things that you do most repeatedly, most often, should be the things that you know give you the highest rate of return, not the things that you do least often, right? You talk about warming up earlier, right? No one likes warming up. Let's be honest. Nobody likes warming up. But I'd go a long way to, to argue, and I'm sure that you could find sets of the people who are most likely to warm up or the people who do the prehab or the people who like stick with these exercises that allow them to pr- progress to be in a better position or a higher likelihood of not being injured have less likelihood of injury. There's no way to completely bulletproof yourself from bad situations, right? As they say it happens. So the goal isn't like to, you know, avoid all that. The goal is like, mm-hmm. what are the small things that you can do repeatedly that give you the highest likelihood of success? And it doesn't matter if it is in work. It doesn't matter if it is in sport. It doesn't matter if it is in diet. We overemphasize the things that uh, I would say are pebbles and not boulders. Like, are you moving mm-hmm. boulders or are you moving pebbles? And the boulders okay. are pretty obvious because they're boring, they're heavy, they're cumbersome, but they work. The boulders are rarely the sexy, exciting things, but it's the things that allow you to stay in the game. And I think the goal of life is to stay in the game. How do you stay in the game so you don't lose your mind, so you don't lose your body, so you don't find yourself reaching for one of these sensationalized ideals because you're actually in a vulnerable position? That's why I argue diets break people down and make them vulnerable. And it makes it easier to sell and prey on them. And this is some guy who's been in the diet industry forever. But I think this happens in other walks of life, right? Whether it's the sexy exercise or whether it's like, you know, chasing the wrong type of things, like got to be focusing on boulders over pebbles. And that means like not going for the bright, shiny object. And you might occasionally be able to layer that on, right? The bright, shiny object for you on, on, on Instagram would be like the 600 plus deadlift, right? But that's not what's allowing you to win. It's everything else that you're doing that like builds mm-hmm. that foundation that allows you to get that strong. It's everything that people do that prevents them from getting hurt. What allows them to be successful in their job, what allows them to make more money, right? Get rich quick screen schemes, right? People aren't, aren't going to be successful in their career by trying to take shortcuts and game the system, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to get better in their career by like learning how to be better um, and then 
growing by like executing at a higher level. I was on a podcast earlier and people were like, how did you get to work with Arnold and LeBron James? And I'm like, I executed at a high level for years at a time until they actually gave me the opportunity to go ahead and like build a business. That's how I did it, right? There was no secret. I had to prove myself over and over and over again, show up every single day, not drop the ball, not screw it up, not be perfect, but be good at what I was doing and do it consistently to the point that like they were willing to give me an opportunity. And that, that's anything in life. But, you know, when we're constantly looking for these shortcuts, we're constantly looking for, right, the, the four-week fix. That's the that that is that is the apple in the Garden of Eden. You you don't want to bite into that one. You know. So what's what I thought was really interesting is you you went out of your way to say, you know, hey, you like paleo? It's for you. Go for it. You like high carb? We can work with it. You like intermittent fasting? Hey, it can work. Just it's got to be the right fit for you. But you you did have one hill that you seemed to be willing to die on, and that that one kind of hill seem to be with respect to processed foods, particularly highly processed foods. We need to scrutinize them. I don't know if vilify is the right word, uh, but you did go to great lengths to, to really highlight why this is so concerning. So let's talk about the why for your concern for highly processed foods, maybe define what you would put underneath that umbrella and, and why it matters both for the general population and for you know athletes as well. Yeah, I'm very diet agnostic. Because I don't care what dietary tribe you belong to because so many of these things work. And I've backed that up with research. That's not an opinion, right? They've done like the diet Super Bowl where they compare all the diets, the high carb to the low carb and like the paleo style to the zone diet or vegan. And what they found is they all get the same results. It's completely dependent on the sustainability. How long you can stay on the diet is determines how much success you have with the diet, yeah. right? So pick what you want. And then there's this one exception. And again, I don't believe in 100% weak, so you don't have to avoid it all the time. But there's these ultra-processed foods. And over the last, I'd say, decade, there's been research that just makes you look at this stuff and be like, okay, what in the world is going on here? And I specify ultra-processed because foods are processed, right? If you have olive oil, that's processed. If you have cheese, that's processed. If you like to have a nut butter, peanut butter, almond butter, that's processed. There are lots of foods that are pro- A can of beans. Also processed, very, very healthy for you. Lots of processed foods get like thrown out, baby with the bathwater. Ultra processed foods means things that have salt, fat, sugar added in an unnatural amount to make it hyper palatable, right? Mm -hmm. So make it more desirable, make it so that you want to eat it. And I would argue that the most dangerous of these foods are not what you typically expect. So an ultra processed food could be like a Twinkie, right? It could be baked goods because like you're putting all this salt and sugar and fat to make something delicious. But you know that the problem is with the with big food, if you want to have an enemy here and you're not going to win this war against them, which is why I take this. You can't screw this up opinion here. approach here. Right. They want you eating more of their food. So they are adding the salt and the sugar and the fat into things where it doesn't belong. Right. And it's the breads into the tomato sauces, into things that could be healthy. Bread is not bad. It's not. If you look around the world, people eat bread and they live long and they're fine and it can be a good source of energy. But like the way the ultra processed breads are made are not good. And then Kevin Hall, who's this NIH researcher, does this experiment where she even was on record. He's like, this is not what I expected to happen. Because we go by this law of just like, right, everything is about macronutrients, we're going to eat. And he created equal macronutrient diets. So the macros on someone's plate were equivalent, but the type of foods were different. You had more natural foods. And then you had like the ultra processed, the chef Boyardee spaghetti, right? So again, the salt, sugar, fat added. 
and same amount of food on each plate, but you let them eat ad lib, right? So you just let them eat until they're full. And the people who are eating the ultra processed foods ate 500 calories more, I believe is Premier League, gaining a pound more per week than the people who are not. But here's where it gets really interesting. So you have two people, right? Your control group uh, eating regular food, the experimental group eating the ultra processed foods. You swap them. And then suddenly the people who are now eating the uh, non-processed ultra processed foods lose all the weight and start eating less. And the people who swap into the ultra processed start eating 500 calorie more, just like the people before and gain weight. So the only thing, and again, the macros were equal. This wasn't about like, oh, there was no protein on the plate. Everything was set equal. It's just like eat until you are full. And there's something as we continue to see in these foods that make us eat more. We have not completely unlocked it. There's an amazing book called The Hungry Brain that talks into how much of our brain actually determines our hunger, right? This is is a game of like, how do we keep ourselves more satisfied? And there's something in these foods that are tricking us into eating more, making us insatiable and the ways that our body would normally tell us, hey, I'm full. The way the hormones that control fullness, leptin and ghrelin normally work are being short-circuited. So I don't think you need to avoid all ultra processed foods because poison is always in the dose, right? You can have your sweets every now and then. But when you're being mindful of like when these ultra processed foods are leaking into meals that you're kind of designing to be healthy, whether it is sandwiches or whether it's things that you snack on, you have to realize that these foods are designed to outsmart your brain to even if you are having your best intent to eat healthier, to make you eat less healthy. And it's something you just have to be mindful of, right? I, I talk about trapdoors in the book. The funny thing about a trapdoor is I make it akin to the, you know, the cartoons that I would watch as a kid, right? Like you can mm-hmm. see the person sitting on the trapdoor. It's so obvious. Like he man's on the trapdoor. What are you doing? Skeletor's going to get you. And, but like, they don't see it. That's life. A lot of times the trapdoors are might seem obvious. They're not. And ultra processed foods are a trapdoor, and you don't have to be perfect with them. But if you realize that you are standing on them or you realize that no, even with your best intent, it might make you eat more. It might outsmart you. It might break you down. So you're wondering like, why am I always hungry? It can help you navigate the situation better, make better choices, and then not put yourself in a position where your brain and body are not on the same page. That's fascinating. Um, and, and stuff that, you know, I feel like I had heard about it. Um, good conversation with Brian St. Pierre years and years ago. And, um, you know, I think it was a little more speculative back then. And it's interesting to see the actual intervention type studies that are, that are backing up just, I mean, this is something that goes beyond behavior changes. These are are foods that are being manipulated for the sake of impacting behavior, which is entirely different than dealing with the, the chronic diet. Who's like, Hey, somebody told me that blueberries are making me fat. You know, it's a very, very different discussion, and and I think a kind of an important guardrail that is important to set. Um, yeah, it's, and it's well, news, on, right? We're just figuring this out, and that's the thing. Yeah. Like sometimes we don't know. People get frustrated with science, and the reality of science is like it's one question after another, so we can get like a small piece of the puzzle to build yeah. it better. And it's like if you would have talked to me five years ago, I wouldn't be having the, the same conversation. But we're at the point yeah. where there's enough of this research to be like, if you're going to limit anything, it's probably the ultra processed foods. That's fascinating. Um, one last question for you. I, I love your discussion about how beliefs drive actions and, and how an old identity can, can easily sabotage future efforts. You know, I, I think, you know, mental skills training in, in the world of, you know, professional sports and, and amateur sports for that matter as well has really taken off. I'd say in the last decade, you know, so we're going down a, a unique rabbit hole here, but are there lessons here for athletes who are trying to change the course of their career? Like, 
what are the lessons they can learn? Where do they need to start with respect to, you know, kind of thinking upstream and understanding this, this concept of behavior change, because largely your focus is on people who want to lose weight, but the truth is that this is some of the same collection of lessons that athletes who need to gain weight, those who need to just eat to optimize performance and energy levels. Um, you know, they all need to learn the exact same thing from it. Yeah. Uh, and I will challenge it. My focus is not on losing weight. My focus is on people becoming better and making the changes they want. Um, like whether that. it's eating healthier, whether yeah. it's living longer, whether it's playing with their kids, becoming stronger, gaining muscle, whatever it is. Yeah. And I say that when people want to make a change, we believe that I need to get motivated. Then I will take action. Then I will see results. Then I will change what I think here. And the research is actually very, very different, right? James Clear talks about in this book, Atomic Habits. I talked with James when writing this book. I had him read a couple chapters because I really wanted to make sure I nailed this. We think that self-perception is the last step. It actually has to be the first one because of this idea of cognitive dissonance. If what you think of yourself is dissonant or in conflict with your behavior, the likelihood of success is very, very low. So if you don't think that you can take on a certain challenge, if you don't think you're a great athlete, if you don't think you can get stronger, if you don't think you can be a leader, if you can think you can make it to the big show, make it to the league, like you better check that first before you do any other type of training, because that belief is going to undercut your success in dieting. Is a lot of people just think that they're overweight and fat. My metabolism is broken. I've always been this way. And it doesn't matter what plan you put them on. That underlying belief is going to make it very hard for them to change their behavior. So when you talk about self-perception, when you talk about behavioral change, the way that this works is actually you have to start by changing your self-perception. You have to start by working on who you think you are and what you think you're capable of accomplishing. And this is the key point. You don't have to have accomplished your goal yet to believe you are that person. And the example I give is when someone starts a job, it could be minor league baseball, right? It doesn't matter what it is. You're, you're not MVP of the league yet, but most people don't start jobs from a position of like scarcity or ineptitude. They start from like, I believe I can be good at this job if I'm given enough time, if I'm given enough support to succeed, right? And that's what allows people to grow and become better. And people who don't won't succeed, right? It becomes a self-limiting belief. So do not confuse not being where you want to be with not being that person. Being that person oftentimes necessitates knowing you're not at your goal state yet, but you still are that person, right? It's state versus trait. So like, who are you as a human? Anything that you want to do, if you are not starting with your self-perception, it becomes a roadblock. So we start by changing the self-perception of telling ourselves who we are. We yeah. then take action that is a, a reference to that, right? Like, I believe I'm a healthy person. I'm going to believe I'm going to be a consistent trainer. I'm going to believe I'm going to be a major league baseball player. Like, this is who I am. And then you have to go to the process goals. You go to the things that are going to allow that to become a reality, right? You do the warm up, you do the rehab, you do the PT stuff, you show up to all your practices, you work with your goals, you work on your mindset. And when you do those actions, even if you're not great at them, what it does is it reaffirms that self-perception, which keeps you doing the action. And then the motivation comes in. Oftentimes we wait for motivation. We ask ourselves, why am I not motivated? Why do I not have the will to do it? And it's because you haven't led with self-perception and you haven't followed it with these process goals, with these actions. So if you spend your whole life waiting for motivation, if you spend your whole life waiting for yourself to be ready, right? A lot of people like never enter the gym. It's like, if I lose 10 pounds, then I'll, then I'll like go to the gym. No, no, no. no one's ever ready. 
right? What has to be ready is your mindset to tell yourself, this is what I want to do. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do to become this person. And when you start that little feedback loop, then the motivation comes in and the motivation then reaffirms the self-perception. So the self-perception strengthens. It becomes easier to take on more of these process goals, take on more complication, take on more discomfort, get better. You become more motivated so that like that motivation then kicks in on those days that are difficult. But if you do not start from a position of truly believing you're not going to be motivated, it's going to be hard. You have to believe who you are before you actually get there and then put in the work to make it a reality. That's everything. And that's not easy, but it is reality. You have to change your self-perception, which will lead to the behavior, which will lead to the motivation, which will lead to maybe not everything you want, but definitely give you the best likelihood of achieving and becoming the person you want to be. There's some actual, I think, remarkable research in the parenting world. Like talk about if you're, if your child identifies as a good helper, as opposed to someone who is very helpful, that it's a, it's a difference maker in terms of their actions. So like, you're, are you a, are you a gymnast or are you good at gymnastics? Like they're, they're very right. different things. And I feel like I've, I've read and uh, I want to say Adam Grant covered it in, in detail on, on a recent podcast as well, but it's, um, it's a, it's a critically important differentiation, even though it seems like just wordplay. There is like an element of change identity to, to ensure future success. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of self-belief, right? Uh, yeah. The person we believe we are is the person we often tend to become. And it, it's a semantics thing, but our, our brain doesn't also all, you know work in simple logical ways, but it does work in specific ways. And if we can understand how our brain works, if we can understand how behavior change happens, if we can understand how habits are built, instead of cursing, like, why don't I just like have motivation, right? Like work with what you have. We talk all the time about like meeting people where they are. Meeting people where they are is such a superpower if you want to get them where they want to be, right? And it doesn't mean you often start where you would start. You start where they need to start in order to get them going. And most people, if they have this mental block or this mental barrier, if you're willing to undercover it, you know, if you're willing to uncover it and take the time to understand it, you can help them remove it. And that's the game changer, right? We all have these mental blocks that stand in our way. And if we're willing to acknowledge it and know that's probably the most human thing, we all have doubts and disbeliefs and things that we worry about. Part of what makes us human. Um, if we can address those things and account for them, then the behavior changes themselves become a lot easier. That's awesome. And and for the record, so is the book. Um, it's called You Can't Screw This Up. Um, absolutely wonderful read. Um, folks can get it at Best Bad Amazon um, or in bookstores, right? Yeah, you can get it anywhere. Beautiful. Um, and where can folks find out more about you if they are interested in learning more about the man, the myth, the legend, Adam Bornstein? Uh, for all social, it's just at Born Fitness. And if you just want to learn more about the book itself, it's can'tscrewthisup.com. We dropped the U, but the URL is literally can'tscrewthisup.com. So if you do miss out on the URL, I guess you did screw it up. <laughs> well, that was outstanding, man. I appreciate you taking the time. You, um, you've been a, a wonderful contributor to the body of knowledge for an extended period of time in this industry in a lot of different ways. And uh, I'm appreciative of our friendship and all learned from you. So thanks for, uh, for coming to talk about this. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it.